This is the word of the Lord. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, he's talking to uh, these believers in this town. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things or things that have an expiration date, but uh, not things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we come back to you each week and we pray not as a formality, not because it's what we're supposed to do before I talk, but because uh, apart from you sending your spirit to help us, to teach us, uh, then this is little more than a lecture. And we would expect little more to happen than what happens at school. Maybe we get a few more data points. Maybe we learn a little bit. But our lives in one way or another, Lord, as you know, are in need of deep change. And so Jesus, come tonight, we pray. Show yourself as gracious. Show yourself as patient. Show yourself as powerful. Would you do it even through weak little words like these? We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, if you thought UGA had a long drought for championships, it's nothing compared to the Chicago Cubs. They're the team that we borrowed the joke that UGA fans have been saying for 30 years, uh, maybe next year. Didn't work out this year. There's always next year. Maybe next year. And uh, Chicago Cubs fans have been saying that to each other for 107 years, up until a year and a half ago. As of a year and a half ago, they had gone 107 years without a World Series. The last time they had won the World Series, it was 1908. Totally different world and everything. And so what they would say to each other became a joke. No one believed it. Hey, maybe there's always next year, maybe next year we'll win. And so... uh, Two falls ago, the Chicago Cubs not only had made it to the World Series, they were the winningest team in baseball, and they had made it all the way to Game 7 of the World Series. They're in Cleveland, playing the Indians. So it's the last game of the series. Winner of this game wins the World Series. They're in Cleveland, so they're not on their home turf. And they had been dominating the game for eight innings. If you don't know much about baseball, there's nine innings in most baseball games. For eight innings of those nine, the Cubs had been crushing the Indians. But in the bottom of the eighth inning, the Indians had put three runs on the board and miraculously tied the game. And this is where you can relate as a UGA fan. Because no matter what our lead is, you're like, it's happening again. We're going to lose. And I thought for... You know, seven-eighths of this game, uh, we, we had this in the bag. So Cleveland, on their home field, with their home crowd, ties the game in the bottom of the eighth inning. And the look on the Cubs' faces said it all. Oh, no. It's happening again. The curse. The 107-year curse, which was that we choke in any clutch situation. 
We, we can't deliver. That was the story of 107 years, and you see it on their faces. It's a mixture of sadness, desperation, panic, fear, all of that. And you wondered, what's this last inning of this game going to do? But then something amazing happened. I remember I was at this friend's house. Uh, it was pretty late uh, when, when this happened in the game. But I looked up from a commercial break, and there was a huge tarp over the field. At this pinnacle moment of the game, the momentum had just shifted. The Cleveland home crowd was on their feet. It was electric. And then you come back from commercial, and the field has a giant blue tarp over it. And it's like pouring like crazy. So both teams had gone back to the locker room and uh, for about 30 minutes. And then when they come back out on the field after this rain delay, lightning in the area, it's as if the Cubs are an entire different team when they come back from that rain delay. Every, uh, every pitch thrown across the plate, the Cubs make contact with. By the time the, the top of the 10th inning comes, the Cubs are up by one run. So they've taken the lead of the game. The game's in extra innings. They're away from home, and it's Cleveland's turn up to bat. They either match that one run, tie the game, and it keeps going, or they can't produce a run, and the Cubs win. So the first guy up for Cleveland in that pivotal inning hits a line drive towards first base, an easy out. Second guy pops up to center field. It's another quick and easy out. Third guy's up to the plate. You can imagine what that stadium is like. A couple of pitches he watches go by, a swing or two, strike. And it's down to this last pitch. And you're like, man, the 107 years rests in this next pitch. And he hits some kind of infield grounder. And it, was, it wasn't even that close. Cubs infielder fields the ball, throws it to first, and he's out. And the Cubs nation and all those players hear what they'd been waiting over a century to hear. Cubs win. World champions. You can imagine what all the interviews, ESPN and all the networks were like on the field as everybody's emptying the dugout, piling on top of each other on center field. But what was curious to me is because of the way the last few innings of the game went down, The interviewers weren't interested in the typical standard questions, like going up to the MVP, uh, how do you feel you finally broke the curse? They weren't even talking about the curse. All of the questions that were getting put before the players with the microphone in their face was, what happened in that locker room? Because for eight innings, y'all had dominated, then you lost momentum, you were psychologically beaten down, it was clear to everybody you were collapsing before our very eyes. 30 minutes later, you come in out of a rain delay, and it's a totally different team And you take the lead again and you dominate. What happened? What turned it around? Every player to a person said, oh, it's what Jason Howard told us. Uh, So Jason Hayward. So Jason Hayward uh, happened to be the, the oldest guy on the team. He's the oldest player. He was, I think, an outfielder. And what had happened in that dugout or in that locker room was this. He stood up, he called a team meeting during that rain delay, and he said, quote, Who was that out on the field this last inning? I don't know what team that was. It's not the Cubs I know. Those weren't the men that I've been playing baseball with and winning all season long. And he said, look at the name on your jersey. What's it say? He said, we're Cubs. We win. We dominate. We fight till the end. 
get out there and play like Cubs. And they went out there and they played like the Cubs had played all season, which is crushing their opponents. And they won the game in a way that made it look pretty easy. Here's the point. Here's why I tell you this story. We'll come back to it a few other times. Action flows directly out of identity. What you do flows directly out of who you think you are, for better and for worse. What you do, what you decide, how you behave, how I behave flows directly out of who I think I am, or a word you might have heard called your identity. How you act is shaped by who you think you are. That's why all Jason Hayward had to do is remind those guys who they were. He did not do a refresher course on the fundamentals of baseball. He didn't berate them and say, I can't believe you guys, you're choking again. Get out there and perform. He didn't didn't have some big inspirational speech. All he did is say, you're Cubs. What's the name on your jersey? So get out there and play like it. And the reason Jason Hayward did that is he knows, like us, instinctively, that action flows out of identity. These guys have clearly forgotten who they are. And they need to be reminded of that. Now, let me nuance what I just said. Because I just said, action flows out of who you think you are. Not necessarily who you are. Right? A a few examples of this. Um, Identity amnesia is a thing. It is easy for us to forget who we are and act out of some other identity. We get amnesia, we forget who we are like the Cubs did, and we start living out of some other narrative that is not true of us. For example, while your grandpa, who is your grandpa, doesn't think you're his grandchild because of his dementia or his Alzheimer's, he still is your grandpa. But if he doesn't think he is, if he's not aware that he is, that you're his grand granddaughter, grandson, he's not going to treat you like you are. He's going to treat you like a stranger, right? Uh, this is a, a, a perennial issue for newly marrieds. I can be Anna's husband and a father to my three kids, but it doesn't mean that's what I think I am. A lot of days I think I'm still a bachelor. And so I sleep in with three crying kids while Anna gets up early to deal with it. Just because I am a father, am a husband, doesn't mean I'm always aware of that and living out of that. And so sometimes I live out of this other identity, this other story that's no longer true of me. I have responsibilities I didn't used to have. Just, you might be what God says you are as a human being, a unique image bearer of a holy God. But if you think, if you've kind of swallowed uncritically the the naturalistic narrative that I'm just an animal and so are all of you, uh, your sexual decisions are going to flow right out of that, right? It's just an animal, and I'm just an animal. We're just satisfying urges. Who you think you are shapes what you do, which also means you might be united to Jesus. You might be alive. You might be ransomed. You might be forgiven by God. But that might not be who you think you are. And it's who you think you are at any given moment, that's shaping and driving your action. 
So you know this. If you're a Christian or you, you call yourself a Christian, you know what it's like to feel like a slave and therefore you deduce, well, then I still am a slave. I feel like I'm addicted to this, therefore I am an addict. I feel powerless, therefore I am powerless. I don't think God is near, therefore he's not near. You, know, you see what I'm saying? We act out of what we think we are, not necessarily what we actually are. And so Peter is sitting here talking to people just like us, and he's saying, if, if, if we are ever going to be able to do what he calls us to do, which is this, do not be conformed to your former ignorance. But, have, but be ready for action, be sober-minded, be holy. If we're ever going to do that, we're going to have to get straight about who we are. Again, because who you are and who you think you are are two different things. And who you think you are, who I think I am in any given moment, is what's actually pivotal in driving my behavior. This is, again, why... Uh, Jason Hayward, all he had to do is remind them what their identity was. Do you know what their old identity was? Do you know what the old narrative for the Chicago Cubs was? Uh, it, w- it was one of shame. It was one of defeat and failure. It was one of uh, a deeply embedded sense of being a loser, literally, figuratively. We don't perform. We are a laughing stock of Major League Baseball. We are an embarrassment to our fans. So for 107 years, that's reinforced. It's massaged into their very DNA. It's part of Cubs culture. No one really expects anything from that team, and they didn't expect it from themselves either. And they acted out of that. The connections are obvious to us, right? We haven't been alive 107 years. You've been alive a couple decades. I've been alive a year or two more than you. And that's a long time for these other narratives, these other identities to massage themselves into your core like, a, like yeast in a loaf of bread brought all the way to the center point of who you think you are. And we tell ourselves these stories. We believe them. We listen to them. We feel them. And Peter is here saying, but we need to talk about who you actually are. Because that's when you're going to see traction gaining on the ground. That's what's going to turn things around in a locker room, as it were, just like for the Cubs. So, Peter says these words in the passage. He says, just like that Cubs team, you're living in exile. He calls them, during your time of exile. Which is to say this, if, if, that, if that phrase hasn't been resonating with you the past few weeks, think of this, living in exile means you don't have home field advantage in life. You're not playing to a home crowd. You're always on the road, and you're always around a crowd that's maybe not for you. That's what living in exile feels like. Every game is an away game. It's unfamiliar. There's nobody in the stands who came to support you. And Peter says that's what exile is like. It's what life is like as elect exiles here. And so just like these, the Cubs, just like us, these Gentile believers had, been, had lived many decades with some other story. I feel dead. I feel far from God. I feel alienated. I'm scared of God. I feel like he's always angry at me. And some of those things were absolutely true, right? They were at enmity with God before he, he, he came to them and reconciled them to him. So this, this was true of their story, just like some of uh, all of us. If you're a Christian, you didn't come out of your out of the womb, a Christian. 
We came out of the womb with these old narratives, old identities. And depending on how long we've lived in them, they're very present in our minds. So Peter is speaking to them and he's speaking to us to, in a way, cure us from this identity amnesia. Now, really quickly, do we just sit here and listen to Peter? Do we just say, gotcha, another thing on my to-do list, don't get identity amnesia. Is that what we leave with tonight and it's just an information broadcast? Like, here's a, here's a memorandum, be aware of this in the future. It can't be. Peter said some things that unless Peter's an idiot, he's assuming our ability and our attention to follow through on it. Peter's saying things, he's quoting uh, old te- key verses in the Old Testament He's applying it in his own moment. He's saying, God said, be holy for I am holy. So also you be holy or different or righteous. He talks about children of obedience or as obedient children. He assumes that there's going to be some follow through. Now, we're going to talk about this in just a minute, but go back to the Cubs locker room. What does faith in that moment look like? For those players... Faith doesn't look like hearing this speech from Jason Hayward say, you're Cubs, who is out there playing? You are the winners, we're the dominators, we're the best team in baseball. Faith is not sitting there and saying, that's a good point, okay. And then it's like, hey, the rain is over, and you just stay in the locker room. You're like, well, faith is is dialing into Jason Hayward, and it's letting him pull you back into what's already true, and running back on that field. And living out of what you believe is true. That's what faith is. Peter is expecting the same thing out of us. Are are we going to hear these words and remain seated afterwards? Are we going to hear these words and believing that we are alive, believing that we're free, believing that we've been ransomed and been loved, we get up and we take the field and we start living Just note, Peter assumes that's going to be the response because he calls us towards those things. And so we've got to make sure that tonight we hear his words that way too. So what's it look like to take the field, as it were? What's it look like to respond by faith to the word of God in this passage and not just kind of respond with intellectual assent like, I get it, that makes sense. What's it look like to take the field? Peter says, prepare your minds for Action. Prepare your minds for action. And he says, be sober-minded so that you can remember who you are now. There's a drunkenness, an emotional drunkenness, a spiritual drunkenness, whatever. The Cubs were drunk in that moment. Drunk on failure, drunk on defeat, drunk on fear. And that that was a sobering moment in that locker room. Peter is calling us to sobering moments to get our bearings again and to remember who we actually are so that who we think we are will begin to align with who we actually are. And he's calling us to be on guard against this identity amnesia. Why? Because when I forget who I am, you know the very place I slide every time? To use Peter's language, I slide to my former ignorance. Right? You get that from the passage We slide back to our former ignorance. He also calls it the futile ways that we inherited from mama and dada. The family business. We slide back into those old ruts and old patterns and old identities. 
when we forget who we are. The passions of our flesh is what he calls it. When we forget who we are, when we think we're someone we're actually not, that's which way the river carries us. That's which way the flow carries us. And so, that's the dynamic. Who you think you are drives how you act. There's a high cost then of forgetting who we are, forgetting who we actually are. But we still have a really big question left on the table. Who are we then? If I've just built the case for who you are and who you think you are is really important, then who does God say we are? Who does Peter in this verse, in this passage, say that we are? This, uh, this whole passage, and next week we're going to get actually deeper into it, but it's a gold mine. It's like walking on an oil field. There's riches beneath every step. Remember that first week we were here, we talked about that, that block of glass with 20 panes, and each one had its own colors, its own shapes, its own hues, and you put them together, and it's this just brilliant, genius, beautiful, complicated piece of art. These, ver- these verses, Peter's just throwing stuff out left and right without much elaboration. It's almost like putting pain after pain of who you actually are tonight, whether you feel like it or don't feel like it. If you are in Jesus, if you have come to the end of yourself and seen him in that place, merciful and patient and gracious and for you, Peter says, then you are now a child of a fair and loving father. A child, he says, you get to call out to. He says, you're the holy one. You're a holy one, which means you have been holied, which means you have been set apart for a special purpose. God has set you aside with special intentions. You are a ransomed one, which means purchased at someone else's expense. Bought, which means you belong to another now. Which means you're not your own. Which means I'm not my own. Which means I'm also not someone else's. I don't belong to any master but the one who purchased me. Which is Jesus himself. He says we're the chosen ones. He'll say next week as we push ahead in a few verses, we're the royal ones. We're priests. All of you are pastors. You're a priest. Like you have a little clerical collar. That's what you are now. It's, what, it's who you are. Peter never says, be a priest. He says, you are a priest. To, to minister to and bless the world. He says, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims, we're exiles. He says, we're not home yet. He says, we're Christians. It's who we are. And this is the antidote to that identity amnesia. Is soaking ourselves in who we actually are. It's soaking ourselves in this. And listen to this. This is where it gets real. Peter says, set your hope on the grace that is to be revealed at the coming of Christ. So the grace that's going to be, it's already given to you. It's already all yours, but it's going to come out of the closet and just parade before the world that God's grace is set on you. Peter says, set your hope. Not wait for your hope to find its way to that. Not just sit tight and see what happens. He says, set Like if you're holding a jack and I said, could you set that down there? Peter says, set your hope there. You've heard of Dave Ramsey probably, the budget guy. (laughs) Dave Ramsey, he's famous for this quote. 
He's all about budgets, and he's defined budget this way. He said, a budget is telling your money where to go. And he says, you can either tell your money where to go, or you can wonder where your money went. Because he's saying at the end of the month, like if you're like me, we look at our credit card bill and we're like, oh, that's where all that money went. He's saying, hey, you could have a budget and you could set your money in certain directions. You could place it somewhere before and tell it where to go. Peter here is saying, you can, you can tell your faith where to go or you can wonder where it went. You can tell your hope where to go or you can wonder where it went. When you look up in whatever amount of time and you wonder, I feel bankrupt. I feel hopeless. I feel like I have no faith. I, feel, I, I can't see Jesus. I don't believe this stuff. And look, I don't want to be reductionistic. I don't want to pretend like the world is that simple where it's just a matter. Some of you are dealing with incredibly difficult things mentally, psychologically, and you're like, are you kidding me? Like, you, okay, just tell my thoughts to go somewhere else. I'm trying to be simple, not simplistic. Because if you're like me, you feel ambushed by thoughts and emotions. And if you're like me, you feel victimized by thoughts and emotions. But in reality, the Bible assumes and the Bible calls us oftentimes to direct our thoughts. Make every thought captive. Set your mind on. Set your hope on. Which presumes that we still retain some ability to direct our thoughts. To set our minds on things. And Peter says, set your hope. Tell your faith where to go. Tell your memory where to go or wonder where it went. Which means there's action called forth here. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. This is what he means when he says these things. I want to zoom in to one word. Our last kind of few minutes together here. With all of these different things Peter throws at us, obedient children, ransomed, purchased by the blood of Christ, all of these things, he keeps coming back to this word holy, and he does in the rest of the book of 1 Peter. We'll come back to it next week. But he says, you are holy. Then he says, be holy. And this is a confusing word. I had a professor in seminary who would always, he would always tell us, uh, if people's mouths don't water... If they don't leap out of their seats with zeal when you talk about holiness, you have not properly described it. What do you do when you hear the word holy or holiness or be holy? What does it produce in you? Does it produce just giant boar fest? Eye roll? Does it produce um, immediate feelings and pangs of guilt? Because it's like, well, I'm not and I can't be and I feel... Like I'm angry right now that this guy's saying that Peter said I'm supposed to be holy because I feel like I can't. What is produced inside of you when you think of the word holy? Is it something that brings you more to life and wakes you up? Or is it something that snoozes you off to sleep and bores you to tears? That's what that professor was getting at. Do we properly understand what this even means? Here's what the word holy means. I'm going to throw a metaphor at it because... um, I guess that's how I thought of this. Holy means different. It means entirely holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly different. It's of a different strata. It's, It's not on the buffet line. It is separate. It's its own thing. It's entirely other. 
Holy, that's what holy means. Holy is a verb too. The U.S. Navy holies certain members of the Navy and makes them Navy SEALs. They are set apart out of the rest for very narrow, specific, special purposes. They are holy in the Navy. And God says, you are holy. He has called you out of the world. He has plucked you out and set you apart for special reasons. But we take a great thing and we turn it into a horrible thing. Even in, so I didn't grow up in this stuff. I didn't grow up, uh, I was in college almost four years, was invited to RUF and never really came until the end. I was never Presbyterian in my whole life uh, until my time in RUF. And for most of my upbringing and for most of my time, even in RUF circles, uh, I have heard holiness talked about in ways that I don't think fits the ethos of the gospel. Because I've heard it said like this, you have to be holy. Have you heard that? You have to be holy. That's true. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But I think it, 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 doesn't fit, it doesn't fit the ethos of the gospel. Here's a better way to put it. You get to be holy. You get to be holy. You get to be holy. You get to be free from sin. You don't have to be a slave that dutifully obeys every impulse anymore. You get to say no to the flesh. You get to repent. You don't have to, you don't be, have to be enslaved to pride so much anymore that you're incapable of admitting that you messed up, that you're not who you wish you were. You get to say, I'm sorry. You get to be holy. You get to live by faith in Jesus. You don't have to be dead to him anymore. You don't have to be at odds with him anymore. You don't have to be far from him anymore. You get to be one with him. You get to be holy. You get to ask forgiveness from people instead of living your life trying to avoid having to ask forgiveness because you don't want to acknowledge that you impose on other people, that you're a burden to other people. You get to let your hair down. You get to come out of hiding. You get to be honest. You get to be holy. Here's my closing illustration to try to wrap all this together. Peter is saying this. I hope he's saying this, or else I really have misunderstood this passage. I think this is what Peter's saying. Here's a metaphor for you. Peter is saying, you were made to be a butterfly. If you're a human being, you were made to be a butterfly. That's your destiny. But every butterfly begins as a caterpillar. Caterpillars and butterflies are the same creature. Like if there's a caterpillar named Ben, one day I might become a butterfly named Ben. I'm, this, I'm, I'm still Ben, but radically different nature. And what separates caterpillar Ben from butterfly Ben is metamorphosis, right? This, this, this radical process of transformation, a new nature. And Peter is looking at his people. He's looking at us and he's saying, Christian, you're a butterfly now. Here's why we misunderstand holiness. We think we're caterpillars oftentimes. And so when we hear the Bible call us to holiness... We feel like a caterpillar who showed up for flight lessons. And you're like, every word the guy says up front, you're just crushed. Because you're like, well, I can't do that. Can you all do that? 
these people look like they can do that. I can't do it. Am I the only one here who can't do that? And then you stop coming to flight lessons because you feel cynical about it. You're like, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? We think we're caterpillars. We think we're earthbound. We laugh when the Bible talks about soaring into the sky to our destiny of being glorious, beautiful creatures who are new, who have been through this transformation and this metamorphosis, who have a new nature now, a new potential, new horizons, new possibilities, new opportunities. And we hear that and we feel crushed by it because we don't remember that our nature has changed. We are new creations, new creatures. It's one thing for a caterpillar to hear someone command it to fly. That's legalism. That's works righteousness. It's an entirely different thing for a butterfly to hear someone say, fly. The butterfly thinks, I get to fly. The caterpillar hears, I have to fly, and I can't. You see the difference? Christian life is a life of joy. It's not just this, oh man, we're in exile. This sucks until Jesus comes back. It is a life of joy. It's a life of flight. It's a life of new possibilities, horizons, opportunities, destinies. And it goes a lot better when we realize we have wings on our back. They're weak, they're fragile, and we don't know how to fly. And God is patiently teaching us day after day, flap those little wings. And tomorrow we'll wake up and I'll teach you all over again how to flap those little wings and how to learn how to love your roommate. Because friends, what is holiness? What is obedience? Jesus said it was loving God and loving your roommate. That's what, it, that's what it means to obey the law. And Jesus says to the Christian, you get to obey now. Not you have to, you get to. That's what holiness is. It is your destiny if you are in Jesus. I want to read one verse to you, pray and be done. This is Titus two eleven and 14, just so you know this is coming from the Bible and not wishful thinking. Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us or free us from all lawlessness And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God has changed your nature. You get to fly now. And Peter wants to remind you you have wings on your back and you have a very patient flight instructor teaching you to be like him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the gospel is not just that you have saved us from guilt, saved us from death, saved us from hell. We praise you that you have done those things. But Lord, what good news would it be if we were saved from death but still enslaved to sin? What if we were, sla- uh, what if we were released from condemnation but still enslaved to the things that God has condemned in the first place? So we love you even more. We love you even doubly that you have not only freed us from death, you have freed us from slavery. You have made us your own. And you have set us loose to fly in this new creation. I pray for my friends. I pray that they will hear you correctly. Anything that was misheard or missaid would be forgotten, Jesus. Preach the good news to our hearts, even after we leave tonight.
Amen.